Our reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, and we're going to be reading from verse 21 to verse 31, and you'll find that on page 726 of the Pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 40, and we're starting at verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his mighty power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Well, here we are. Isaiah chapter 40 is what we were looking at. Uh, Isaiah 40, 21 to 31 on page 728, I think. Is that right? 726, I'm going to say. I'll put my glasses on. I don't know whether you saw in the news, um, China has started celebrating Harvest Festival uh, for the first time in, in one particular province. Um, they are celebrating it to mark the autumn equinox. Uh, perhaps unlike what we're doing today, though, in China, what they are thanking or who are they are thanking are the country's agricultural workers cooperatives. So this is China's chance to thank the cooperatives uh, for all the food, and that's, I think that's corn maize stacked up in arches uh, over the workers. And I thought, that's interesting, isn't it? It's a natural reaction, isn't it, that we want to thank God, or we want to thank somebody, we want to celebrate for all the... This is very high. For all the good things uh, that we have, that we enjoy, some of the things that uh, Phil was just talking about. But I think it's a bit of a problem in a secular society like ours of who we do thank and who we do uh, relate to. In China, you see here, it's the agricultural workers' cooperatives. But what about in Hove? And that's really the question that Isaiah's asking uh, in, this, in this passage. Um, perhaps not only just who to thank, but is there anyone to thank? Where does all this stuff that 
Phil has just been uh, talking about and praying about, where does it all ultimately come from? Now, you might say the answer is just down the road uh, in Waitrose, whether it's uh, their own brand or other people's. Um, but, of course, it's beyond that, isn't it? Where, do we, where does all this really come from? And if we find an answer to that, well, so what? What does that mean for us? Well, of course, the answer Isaiah has is, is pretty straightforward, isn't it, really? It's a deep question, but Isaiah has a very simple answer. He just says straightforward, and you can see that. If you look at verse 28, he said, The Lord, the everlasting God, is the creator of the ends of the earth. And then verse 26, he takes it wider than that, doesn't he? Not only the ends of the earth, but the whole universe too. All the stars are created by the Lord, the creator God. And I thought, well, really, that's the end of the sermon, isn't it? Which might be a relief. That's, uh, who said yes? Well, that's Isaiah's message. Look up, look at the stars, look around you, and realize there is a creator God. And I was thinking, well, there must be some deep, clever insight I can bring to this, you know, especially now I've got a blue scarf. I must be able to say something that nobody's ever thought of before. Um, But actually, of course, the answer is, no, I can't. It's the same truth that Isaiah was preaching 3,000 years ago. And no one's really ever going to come up with a better answer. In fact, we were talking about this in the, in the earlier service, and I thought the only other person who came up with a better answer was Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, who, who said the universe was created by mice. Uh, and if you read that, it, it's, it's quite a complex theory. Um, um, I was told afterwards that I was doctrinally wrong and actually the mice didn't create the universe. It was the megalithians who contracted the mice to do the work on their behalf. So even that theory doesn't stand up. So actually there is no better answer than the one we have in Isaiah. Repeatedly the Bible tells us that the very fact that the universe exists points us to a creator God. Psalm 19, a very famous verse, isn't it? The skies, the heavens tell us what God has done and tell us about his glory. Now, I do think for us, we are perhaps in day-to-day life quite insulated from creation, aren't we? We, we sort of live in our, in our rather sort of materialistic modern bubble. And maybe today is just the time just to take a bit of time out uh, and just to stop and think about what that verse means, that creation witnesses to God. So we can't always see the stars, there's cloudy nights around here, but we do live in this fantastic part of the world, don't we? You can't help but look at that picture and just be staggered at its beauty. We do have the downs, and you can stand up on the downs, can't you? You can look out to sea if you ignore the wind farm. We've got the beauty of the sea, we've got the beauty of the downs, we've got gardens, we've got parks, we've got plenty of chances around us just to reflect, as Isaiah says, where does this all come from and what does that mean? And Isaiah takes it actually a bit further. He, I think in modern parlance, he says, this is binary. There's no two ways about this. You look at verse 25. Verse 25, God asks, who will you compare me to? And of course, the answer implicit in the rest of the verse is, well, absolutely no one. The creator God has no equal. Especially human being, kings, politicians, Mere chaff, God says, doesn't he? Verses 22, 24. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And we know that in our own experience. And Isaiah is writing at a time when people are following other gods. They are following other religions. 
Uh, and they do have other beliefs. It's not that different from now. We are a tiny minority, aren't we, of the population of Hove, Brighton, who are here worshipping God today. But Isaiah says, and God says, whatever else you're worshipping doesn't compare. These other gods, they just don't compare. One of the things that's come up frequently on, on the course I've just done is, well, what about other religions? And, uh, you know, what do we do about that? Do all paths lead to God? And we rightly respect other people's faith and other people's religion. But the Bible says that none of those faiths, none of those religions compare with the eternal creator God that's shown here. There is one God, and he reveals himself in creation. So Isaiah simply says, just open our eyes, look around us, Creation shows that we do have this wonderful creator God. We could have gone mad with pictures on this, uh, on this talk, couldn't you, with pictures of creation. So uh, there's another one. But the point is, I guess, that looking at the stars, looking at the wonderful creation like this, just can't tell us everything about God. C.S. Lewis says that we can get as far as working out for ourselves that something is directing the universe, but that's not, that's not enough. And there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says that God has planted eternity in our hearts. It's a, it's a beautiful verse, isn't it? So we're designed to want to know more. Now, there are some things that we will never fully understand. We understand that. These are deep truths that sometimes we will never understand. Things like, why Brighton never win the easy matches? Why the latest version of Outlook is so awful? Southern Rail timetables. There are things that are beyond understanding. But we do do better when we look at our Creator because He has revealed Himself not just in creation like this and not just through the books like Isaiah where God speaks to us, but also, of course, uh, in the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. And Phil referred to Alpha, and that was something that we were looking at a, a couple of weeks ago. And a few hundred years later, after Isaiah wrote, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to Rome, he says, yes, you can see God's eternal power in creation. That tells you something. But if you really want to know God, not just about him, but you really want to know him, then you have to look at the person of Jesus. Because God walks this earth. He lives in his creation, in the person of Jesus. And he lives and dies for us on the cross there, showing us his love for us by dying for our offences. And Jesus is very clear. He says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Whoever's seen me, you're looking at God. So if you like, Isaiah gets us started here by showing us God in creation. And then Jesus completes the picture, showing us God in person. And that really is the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. And when you're presented that, with that truth, we have to deal with it. How do you react uh, to, to that news? And if you look at this passage, you see sort of verses 27 to 28, for instance, Isaiah's listeners just either simply seem not to believe, which seems to be why Isaiah is saying, have you not heard, have you not listened? Um, or they're saying, well, okay, maybe God does exist, but it's a little bit irrelevant to me. He doesn't really take much notice of what's going on here. And that's what you're seeing in those verses 27 and 28. Uh, essentially, those people that Isaiah was talking to was, were looking down and not looking up. So why? Why would they say that? Is that, is that what we're like? Um, well, their country was in a bit of a mess. Uh, Israel, or Judah at that time, was surrounded by three 
um, superpowers. So to the north, you have the, uh, the Assyrians, and this is all genuine artwork from the right time, so this is, this is them. So you had the Assyrian army to the north, and they were bearing down on Israel. Uh, to the right, what's that, east or west? East, it's geography, east, right, to the east, right-hand side. Uh, you've got the Babylonian Empire building up, they're very aggressive, they're piling in on Israel. And then to the south, uh, you've got Egypt, another superpower. So poor old Israel is being squeezed, and the politicians are corrupt, and you think how we feel about Brexit. We've got Europe on one side, we've got Russia on the other, we've got America on the other, all being squeezed. But for Israel, stakes were so much higher. Really scary stuff, facing siege and death and exile and all sorts of horrible things. So I guess in that situation, simply being told, well, just look up, trust in God, everything's fine, might sound a bit like sort of Disney theology, all a bit trite, all a bit too easy, not really in the real world at all. But Isaiah says, and I think with some frustration probably where you read it, despite all that, you folks should know that God's in charge because you're just ignoring the evidence. You have got the evidence that God's in charge. You've seen God at work. You've seen him in creation. You've seen him in your history. There is enough evidence for you to accept that there is a creator God in charge. Now, one episode was really recent. Um, God, just a couple of chapters before this, if you go back into Isaiah, we won't look at it, uh, you'll find the Assyrian army marches on Jerusalem. It surrounds it. Uh, Hezekiah is the king. Uh, he, he's panicking. Everybody thought Jerusalem was, was doomed. And uh, it's, in, it's in 2 Kings 19 as well. Because God intervenes, and they record 185,000 soldiers die uh, miraculously overnight in some way or another uh, and uh, the uh, Egyptian the Syrian uh, king uh, goes home uh, and there's a coup and that's really the fall of the Assyrian Empire so the people have seen God at work they've seen this mighty superpower disappear and yet despite the evidence their choice is simply to say no to God their choice is rejection and that is still the choice that we have now. You're very, you know, not to say you're welcome, but anybody has that choice. Okay? You can read the Bible. You can see the evidence of what God has done. Uh, you can see God's spirit at work in people's lives around you. You can see God at work. We can hear. We can know, just as those folk did. But we can still reject if we choose to. So that's our choice. We can reject. Isaiah doesn't make it explicit here, but the Bible is pretty clear that if we reject that offer, then the route that leads to death and destruction. But Isaiah doesn't focus on that. What he goes on to instead is to say, well, what happens if I accept that offer? What happens if we choose instead to trust in this creator God, this one who sent us his son? Then Isaiah finishes with a fantastic picture of what we receive. You see, when we turn to Christ, we are in the Lord, and we can enjoy what Paul Washington spoke about last week in the evening. He talked about us enjoying every spiritual blessing, which is a phrase of Paul's. And that's why you look down into verse 31, where it says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And I thought, well, what does that mean? 
It all sounds very nice, doesn't it? I'm going to walk and uh, not get faint. I'm going to run and not grow weary. I'm going to fly like an eagle. But actually, I'm not. I can't fly like an eagle. I did look up to see whether anybody has flown, and there are some wonderful pictures of flying Buddhist monks uh, with sort of um, little jet trails attached to them as they shoot off into the uh, skies. Um, But actually, they're not flying, and we don't fly. So what does it mean to soar like an eagle, run and not grow weary? The other day, I had a free day. Uh, Judith was away, church army. So I uh, decided to see how far I could walk. Uh, And I set off at half past eight, uh, and I got to Peacehaven at around about half past eleven. I was quite tired, and then realised I had to walk back. And I want to testify to two things. One is, as a Christian, I am full of God's Holy Spirit. And the other thing I can testify is that by the time I got to Dyke Road, I was crawling. I had grown faint and I was stumbling and grown very, very weary. So these words are not literal, are they? They're clearly not literal. They're spiritual truths. And I just want to end with a a few moments, really, just reflecting on what they might mean for each one of us who trusts in the Lord. We'll go backwards. Let's think about walking. Because in the Bible, I think we walk with the Lord. You think the very first chapters of the Bible in Genesis... God is walking in the garden, isn't he? Looking for company. He's looking for us, looking for his friends. And then quite soon after we get these two giants of the Old Testament, Noah and and Enoch, uh, and they're both described as having long lives walking with the Lord. Go forward a bit, Psalm 23, a very well-known verse uh, that says that when, and it's not an if, it's a when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. As we walk through that valley, he's there comforting us. And then you go right forward, 2 Corinthians, Paul picks up a promise originally made in Exodus where God says that he will walk with those who trust him. So I think that's talking about our day-to-day lives, isn't it? Whatever we encounter, there's a promise that the Lord's with us. We may be physically faint, we may be crawling up Dyke Road. But God's love and power will sustain us and see us safely to our heavenly home. That's his promise. We walk with the Father. So what about running? Well, my running isn't much better. Well, it's worse, much worse than my walking. So uh, I'm not pretending to be an expert on running. But what I can see in the scripture is that very often when people are running, they're running with good news. I thought it was quite striking. There's an urgency about it. You remember the scene of the the father meeting the prodigal son, and he runs to the son. Mary runs to tell Peter that Jesus is risen. She goes to the tomb and she runs to tell him. Can't wait to pass on the good news. Peter and John can't wait to find out. They they run back again. It's all very athletic. Uh, They race to get to the empty tomb. And Paul says, when he's writing to the Philippians later on, he says... um, He asks them to hold on to the word of life that he brought them so that he will not have run in vain. His race was to bring them the word of life, to point them to Jesus. So we run, I think in part, to bring the great news that we are put right with God through Jesus. And we need to run into his arms. So if we walk with the Father, I think we run to Jesus. And that leaves us with the eagle, doesn't it? It's a great picture, that one. Because the eagle's not bound to the earth. We're running, we're walking on this earth, but the eagle isn't. It moves in a new dimension where it's completely at home. 
It's riding the wind, which incidentally is the same word as the Bible used for God's spirit. So perhaps like the eagle, we are in a new dimension. Christians, when we turn to Christ, the Bible is clear, we are new beings. We're born again. And then we're filled with God's spirit. And Ephesians 5.8 tells us that we should go on being filled with the Holy Spirit as he gives us the power to live as we should. And we're living in that different dimension. So soaring in the spirit, I don't know what that conjures up to you. Uh, it may involve wonderful moments of praise. It may mean experiencing the spiritual gifts and the spiritual fruits as we're transformed into Christ-likeness. But it's not just that, is it? The spirit-filled life also will involve complete surrender to the will of God, whatever that entails. And if we want to know what that entails, if we want to know what it looks like, then we can see Jesus dying on the cross for us because that is what a spirit-filled life ultimately looks like. So perhaps... And this is only my thoughts, perhaps. But perhaps we walk with the Father and we run to Jesus and we soar in the Spirit. It's another wonderful view around here, isn't it? Let me summarize. Harvest time, I think it's a great time, isn't it, to reflect on creation and be thankful for the many good things we enjoy. And who are we going to thank? We're not just going to thank the agricultural workers of, uh, of China. There's much more to it than that. Than that. And Isaiah tells us we've just got to look up, look around to see evidence for that mighty creator God. And that's the start of an understanding that's only complete uh, in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. And then for us who have accepted God's love, when we turn to him, there is that promise that we will truly walk and not be faint. We will run and never grow weary And we will soar like eagles, all in the company of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.